UVF, it was, I think, about 150, roughly 150 in the whole of the 1970s. They were more likely, when they did kill, to use uh, bombs than any other group. It's not to say that they, they committed more murders using bombs than anyone else, but as a percentage of the murders that they, they carried out, it was higher for the UVF than anyone else. What you've got to understand, every single paramilitary figure in Northern Ireland who becomes in any way prominent, or even those who aren't prominent, once they develop enemies, gets accused of being a type. Because it's it's the worst thing you can say about someone in that world. It's like calling someone you know, in normal world a piece. Thank you very much, um, Ian, better known as uh, better known as Balaclava Street. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, to, to get us going there, you might give us a you might give us a bit of an idea of where your interest um, in the subject of like loyalists and the troubles um, first came, and especially to the point where where you've written a blog for for years about it. You know, you're you're very much involved in it. Well, it started out. Let's see, of about 2011 or so. I was originally going to write a a screenplay about the troubles, you know, focusing on a young guy who ends up involved in the loyalist paramilitaries and whatnot. That's that's more my sort of background. I've never I've never written a screenplay that ever got made into anything. Came closer a couple of times. I did one for uh, Channel 4 when I was still at college and then another one for um, Scottish Screen. Um, but as part of the research for that, you know, I devoured, you know, when I get into a subject, I really get into it and bore into it as much as I can. So I was going on eBay and buying up all these, you know, out of print books and, and so on. And eventually I came into to contact with a guy called Plum Smith, who uh, is a former member of the Red Hand Commando. And he he was the first loyalist prisoner in Long Kesh in 1972. And Plum had been involved in the PUP, the Progressive Unionist Party, which was a sort of political party associated with the UVF and Red Hand. Um, through him, I did a walking tour of the the Shango. I think twenty twelve, maybe twenty thirteen. Can't remember which. Um, but nothing, nothing came of that um, screenplay. You know, I wrote a, a treatment for it, and that's as far as I went. Uh, but having done all this research, I was still really interested in the subject, and I just, I had to, I had to sort of get it out of my system. You know, for for, for my own sake, and. That's when I started up the, the the website, which I think was in January or February 2014. And you know, it's just it's just carried on from there. And in 2017, um, you know, obviously following on from the website, you know, people were saying to me, you know, you should write a book, you know. Um, and I was originally gonna write a book that focused on all the loyalist paramilitaries, UVF, UDA, Red Hand Commando. Um, but in 2017, I had a, a meeting with um, some very senior people from the UVF who basically said to me, if you would be willing to to do a book that only focused on the UVF, we would give you access to the organisation. Um, not not quite carte blanche to go. And well, yeah, basically any anywhere that you know, I wanted to go and the people concerned were happy to speak to me, you know, they facilitated. You know, nothing has really been out of bounds, although uh, the only condition I myself have attached it is that I don't talk about sort of um, contemporary goings on. Um, 
basically for, for legal reasons, it's just too dodgy. The closer you get to the present day, the dodgier things become, legally speaking, especially after 1998, because say things went tits up, you know, in the, you know, in the worst case scenario, um, prior to 1998, somebody would only serve two years if they were convicted of anything. But after that, there's, you know, that protection isn't there. Although I don't, I don't, you know, ask the, you know, who shot the sheriff type questions. I don't, I don't ask people that. It's, and they wouldn't answer anyway. So my um, question more sort of general than that. Gotcha. And um, where, where did the, um, if you remember, where, where did the original like like seed in your mind uh, get planted about? I don't know the the, the troubles generally. Did you, like, you 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 grew up in you you grew up in Scotland too, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I was born in 1982, so it was always on the TV, you know, when I was growing up. And I I was a slightly strange child because I was really interested in current affairs and news. You know, I would always watch. Nine o'clock news and news night and question time and panorama, all these sort of things. You know, when I was like eight or nine years old, um, I was really, I was really into that. So um, there was always something on the background, but I was, I was uh, totally, totally ignorant of the sort of sectarian aspect because I'm not interested in football. I don't support Rangers and Celt or Celtic or anything like that. I can't stand football. Um, so I was totally ignorant of of that sort of thing in fact in fact I really disliked it um you know I hated that that, that sort of sectarian phenomenon and uh, that you get in the central belt of Scotland um it's a massive turn off for me um so I didn't even have that that sort of familiarity from it you know if I was interested in the troubles in any sort of way it was more from the the sort of perspective of the British Army because um, I was one of these kids that was really interested in the military and, you know, walked about in a camouflage jacket, you know, that, that, sort, that sort of thing. Um, read books about the Foreign Legion and the SAS, all that, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's sort of stuff that, that certain little boys are into. Um, so I had some familiarity from, from that sort of quality, but that, that was it, really. Go on to a, go in a, a little bit to uh, the various groups um of loyalists okay so i mean the, the uvf has been around like even pre-world war one there was there, there was some of them f- fighting in the psalm even um uh, the uda uh, a different group and then and then the u the uff you, you you might explain the the role that that group or or non-group kind of plays mm-hmm. well we just go straight into the the uff the uff did exist you know if you would maybe best describe the UFF is the part of the UDA that that killed people, that murdered people. I mean, you don't people forget that the UDA, especially in the early mid seventies, was a huge organization. There's about twenty thousand members of it. Um, maybe not every single one of them was a hand up, sworn in member, but uh, those are the sort of numbers they could put on the street. But uh, I think Colin Crawford uh, is, is the only person who's done research into this, but he he's, uh, stated that, say, 4 to 5% of UDA members were also in the UFF. Um, so about 1 in 20. So it was a very small component of the UDA. And there was a separate oath for people joining the UFF. What's interesting is that U, the UFF, which came along in 1973, was actually founded in large part by people who'd been in the UVF. 
there were people who'd been in the UVF in the early days, sort of pre-69, when the UDA came along, they jumped ship onto that. Like Andy Terry was in the UVF and Tara. Davy Payne was also there. Uh, a guy called John Havron, he was also there. And certainly the 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 latter two of those would have been instrumental in setting up the, the UFF. Uh, the UFF was it was basically to begin with, it was a, a sort of device to to prevent the UDA from being banned. because um, the UDA was a legal organization up until 1992. Um the UDA it was always it was always a much more sort of loose structure to the UVF. Um and the fact that it grew out of these sort of street level vigilante groups and they didn't have that. That sort of rigid top-down uh, centralized command structure that the UVF had. Um, one of, one of the biggest differences in the UDA, everything was done by a popular vote. You know, major decisions weren't taken, you know, without there being a, a, a vote on the, the part of the the membership. Like in what was it, nineteen seventy nine, the UDA released a big policy document. The beyond the religious divide, which is when they were pushing for sort of negotiated independence for for Northern Ireland, that came about as a result of a popular vote within the the organisation. The the membership endorsed that. Whereas with the UVF, there is consultation of the the volunteers, but when the leadership made a decision, that was it. You know, and people had to abide by it. Uh, the IRA would be the same. Um, and of course, you have you have the Red Hand Commando, which um, was formed in 1970. The Red, the Red Hand, Gareth Mulvane is much more knowledgeable than than me about this. Gareth, a, a good friend of mine, um, that came about in direct response to uh, IRA attacks on the the White Rock Parade in West Belfast in uh, in the summer of 1970, and. A lot of those guys were also involved in the Shankill Defence Association, which is another sort of early vigilante group. Um, the Red Hand wasn't formed by John McCaig. John McCaig was one of the very prominent uh, militant loyalists in the early part of the Troubles. Um, a lot has been written about McCaig, and people can find that online. Some of it's not true, some of it is. Um, but after the Red Hand was sort of up and running, the the guys who who formed it who were all really young they were in the they were like teenagers and the oldest would have been about twenty maybe twenty one they approached McCaig to provide some sort of leadership and act as a, a figurehead of the organisation and then nineteen seventy two when Gusty Spence went on the run from from prison there was a a meeting and there was a formal agreement that the the Red Hand and the UVF would be formally aligned with each other. Um, and that was that. That agreement was uh, sort of renewed in 1976, and persisted after that. And then the UVF itself, um, well, formed either early '66 or late 1965, originally as a sort of wedge against uh, Terence O'Neill. Terence O'Neill was the leader of the Ulster Unionists, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland in those days, and he was pursuing a much more sort of conciliatory line towards Dublin than, than any uh, previous prime ministers. And he was sort of making uh, very tentative and, and, you know, in retrospect, minor 
steps towards conciliation to the, the, the nationalist community. You know, it, stuff that in retrospect seems really, really innocuous, but at the time um, was absolutely anathema to sort of militant loyalists and unionists. And there are, there are people who would who, who have claimed that um, the UVF was set up as part of a conspiracy by hardliners within the Ulster Unionist Party. I haven't found any evidence to say that's the case. I'm not going to say that it's, you know, definitively not the case. But, you know, you have to make a judgment based on evidence, not what, on what you suspect or what you would like to be true. Um, you know, it, it's been pointed out that you know, it would be in the interest of the UVF to claim that that was the case. It kind of absolves them of some responsibility for forming the UVF and what came came after that. Um, you know, I've asked people who are very senior in the, the UVF, you know, can, okay, if there was a conspiracy, who was who was involved? You know, give me names. And, you know, they've refused to name them, which given some of the other stuff they've, they've spoken about, you know, I, I find it you know, incomprehensible. You know, if you're going to talk to people about you know, bombings and mass murders and, you know, arm, international arms importation, you know, this is, you know, it's nothing really in comparison, so. Sure. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the jury's still out on that one. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, okay, so this might be, might be a little tough to gauge, but like, in terms of operations and uh, bombings and shootings and just kind of general paramilitary activity, um, who, uh, who who did more? U UVF, UDA. I assume I, I assume myself UVF mm. just just because I know the name so much. Yeah. I'm so much more familiar with the name. Would, would that be the case? Is there any kind of rough yeah. rate you could put on it? Well, the, there are there are figures, uh, definitive figures, which are which are attributed to the organisations. But two two main sources, which are uh, the index of deaths which was curated by Malcolm, a guy called Malcolm Sutton. And that's available on the Kane website. Kane stands for Conflict Archive in the Internet. Um, and then the other one is the book Lost Lives, um, which is out of print now and goes for silly money, like 600 to 800 pounds. You know, I've got a copy there that I got for a tenner, you know, over a decade ago. Um, but the UVF killed more uh, than the UDA. You could say roughly... 550 to 600 people. Um, what what I would one caveat I would add is that um, the attributions of responsibility for particular murders in both lost lives and the Sutton Index, particularly lost lives, are not totally reliable. Um, and also the status of certain victims, um, again, not totally reliable. I know that for a fact there are people in those. In that in that book, who were either members of the UBF or UDA or IRA, INLA, who are listed as civilians, um, there are various reasons why they weren't they weren't claimed. Um, but you've got to remember, in the, the early and mid seventies, in particular, a lot of these murders weren't claimed, um, or if if they were, they were sometimes claimed under false names. Um, quite a, quite a, a number of UVF operations in in the early days were claimed by the UDA or the UFF, um, and the UVF got really pissed off about it. At one point, they ran an article in Combat, which was their sort of monthly journal called uh, 
which was headlined the telephone terrorists slating the UDA for, you know, uh, taking taking credit for UVF jobs rather than going out and doing doing their own. But at the same time, there were quite a few people in the UVF who were perfectly happy for that to happen because it took, you know, attention away from them, draw, drew the security forces away from them. Um, and there were a few occasions where members of the UVF deliberately put in claims from the UDA or UF, usually UFF, to in order to do that. Um, so you can't totally trust either the Sutton Index or Lost Lives. Actually, personally, I think the Sutton Index is probably slightly more accurate, although obviously there's, there's far less detail in there. Um, one big, big difference between the two is that the UVF were much, much more, in the 70s at least, much more likely to use explosives. Um, the number of murders carried out by the UDA or UFF using explosives could be counted on your, your fingers. Uh, the UVF, it was, I think, about 150, roughly 150 in the whole of the 1970s. They were more likely, when they did kill, to use uh, bombs than any other group. It's not to say that they, they committed more murders using bombs than anyone else, but as a percentage of the murders that they, they carried out, it was higher for the UVF than anyone else. Uh, as any other, sorry, any other paramilitary group, you don't just mean law in, inclu including Including the probies, yeah. Um, exactly why that is the case? Um, probably because the UVF at that time were the most militant loyalist group. Um, Possibly also because there were people in the UVF who had served in the British Army and had military training, but then there were plenty of people in the UDA who had also been in the in the army. If it was anything, it was probably because they were very militant and because there was a a, a deliberate attempt that anything the IRA did, any tactic the IRA did, we will match it like for like, you know, in retaliating against their community. So. I think that's that's probably the reason why. Yeah, in fact, um, on, on on what you just said there, um, uh, Eddie Kenner, who who actually linked us up, who I spoke to about two or three weeks ago, he said that when he was sixteen, he he himself um, planted a bomb with the intention of with the intention of killing innocent civilians, and the idea was that they had gotten one. He had been picking out bodies, um, like I think about two years ago from from an IRA bomb, and his thinking was, yeah, we're we're going to do the exact same thing. Going the exact same thing to you. Like in terms of like someone joining, like 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 let's say someone at the time, like a 20-year-old in whatever, 1970 or something, um, they want to join a, a loyalist paramilitary group. Um, is there any kind of ideological bent that would send them towards uh, UVF UDA? Is it just your area or who you have a connection to? How, how would people actually like like pick it? Yeah, well, in this goes for all paramilitary groups, but probably particularly the, the loyalists. A geographical area is very important in um, in determining what, what sort of group somebody joined, but also family background. You know, if you have, you know, close family members or relatives who are mem members of one particular organisation, it's more likely that you'll join that one. Although you have cases where, you know, there'll be... A couple of two two brothers, one of being UVF, one of the UDA, and that was that was particularly traumatic when the feud, the big feud happened in in two thousand. Um, one thing that has to be remembered is that um, 
in late 60s, early 70s, the UVF was incredibly secretive, really up until mid-72 when uh, Gusty, you know, skipped skipped uh, his uh, compassionate parole. Um, and he did a, a famous interview for, for World in Action. A lot of people believed that the UVF didn't exist. You know, they thought it was a myth. And the, the leadership of the UVF were very happy for people to think that. Um, up until, uh, let's see, autumn 1974, you could only be, you could only join the UVF by being invited. You know, they made the approach to you. I mean, obviously, there were exceptions to that. You know, if you knew someone who was UVF and you were close to them and you pestered them for long enough, you know, you could possibly get in that way. Um, but in the early days, it was a very difficult organisation to join. Most people didn't know anything about it. And there was there was a pretty involved vetting process. Like they would they would carry out their own research into you. You know, they would, you know, quite subtly, you know, uh, question your family, your friends, they'd look into your background. One of the things that they were really concerned with was uh, alcohol consumption. Um all the the IRA were were pretty diligent about that as well because you know, especially in those days, drink was a major, major part of working class life in Belfast, as it would be the rest of Ireland and and UK. Um, at that at that point, there were forty four pubs on the Shankle, you know, uh, pub, pubs and clubs, um, you know, and it was normal for people on their lunch break to go out and have a few pints and and whatnot. Um, you know, alcohol consumption was tolerated in a way that it isn't now. Um, but with that, obviously, some people, when they drink, you know, loosens their tongue and so on. So that was a that was a, something they uh, they made a, a big effort to to look into, and also gambling as well. You know, the, the tabloids they 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 always talk about drugs and and so on. But in those days, in fact, for the majority of the troubles, the two biggest disciplinary issues for certainly the UVF and probably all the other groups as well, for alcohol and gambling. You know, people getting into big gambling debts and so on, you know, it's very easy for them to get turned by the security forces if they, you know, offer them a bit of money here and there. Um, but the UDA, by comparison, you know, it was a legal organisation. You weren't really running a risk just by joining it. I mean, just for membership of the UVA, UVF, you could get sent to prison. Um, and in the the early days, 72, 73, you know, certain streets in working class loyalist areas, most of the adult men and, and older teenagers on the street would be members of the UDA. Um, and obviously as time went on, you know, certain people who were less committed dropped out and, you know, the, the more dedicated ones remained. Um, but the UDA was always a much, much larger organisation than the UDF. Right. Um, how do I, I? I don't know. You 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 you've spoken with plenty of um of ex loyalists. I I don't know if you've gone to this subject, but um from speaking to them, like how how do do most of them view, we'll say their um their uh, not not contemporaries, but their their equivalents over at um over on the Republican side. Did they did they have some kind of admiration for the fact that they're they're essentially doing what the loyalists are doing? They they're just they're just fighting. Um, for, for for the opposite thing, but something they believe. I, I remember hearing even before I was even interested. 
I think in the troubles. I, I remember seeing a documentary about uh about Johnny Adair, and I remember him saying that if he was born just you know like a small bit down the road, he he'd be doing the exact same thing for the other side. And um, how did they how did they generally view them in terms of you know did they respect them and and also their competence? Did, did they see him as being more or less competent than them in terms of operations and stuff? Well, it's 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 very interesting in respect in respect of specifically the UVF, the guys who were old school UVF, meaning late sixties, early seventies, mid seventies, particularly late sixties, early seventies. You know, there's there's quite a theme of admiration for the official IRA amongst those guys. Um, I would think even in some cases the, the uh, some of these guys idealized. You know, or had a not idolized, but had an idealized view of the official IRA. You know, they would see them as a wedge against the probies. They would see them as being genuinely non-sectarian or anti-sectarian. Um, uh, particularly, Gusty Spence would be one of those people. Gusty had a lot of contact with uh, the leadership of the official IRA in in prison. I mean, on the outside, um, the UVF got intelligence from the stickies. Uh, particularly on the IMLA when it started to, to appear in early 75, you know, and people were killed as a result of that. You know, the stickies passed information to the UV. One of them was like I called Michael Adamson, who had defected from the officials to the IRSP slash INLA, or it was calling itself the PLA, the People's Libera Liberation Army in those days. If you look at the operation, it was obviously carried out on the basis of really good intelligence, we could only, which could only have come about from other Republicans. Wow, that, that, that's big. Uh -huh. Well, I, I, I don't think I'm the first person to to say that, but that's 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 been, you know, certainly rumored for for a while. Um, I mean, the UBF uniform in the 1970s, which was black trousers and boots, um, black polo neck jumper, black leather jacket, and uh, a black cap comforter. Um, almost identical to the official IRA uniform of of those days, except the officials would use a, a Blackberry. Um, and that was deliberate, you know, that would have been, prob probably Gustin lifted that straight from the official IRA. As far as the probies go, um, you know, they, they, I think the default view would be loathing for the most part, but there would be a, a sort of grudging acknowledgement that they were you know, professional, they were, they were, you know, competent terrorists or, you know, insurgents, whatever you want to call them. Um, they certainly weren't stupid. Um, I mean, speaking for myself, one of the, one of the things I think the IRA were, were in, in a way that most of the loyalist organizations weren't, they, they were very imaginative in their operations. Uh, the one I always refer to is the, there was a, uh, a sort of permanent checkpoint out in the country where they'd put in concrete bollards as a sort of chicane and there was there was no way of accessing it, save for the proxy bomb or whatnot. So there was a railway line that ran along next to it. So the IRA took a transit van and put uh, railway car wheels on it and a bomb in the back and, um, you know, pushed it, pushed it along and detonated it when it went alongside. If they were more imaginative, it's cause, probably because there was more scope to do that, you know, because the army were a very, the security force were a very visible target. Um, but yeah, and it's got it's got to be remembered that in the 
again, in the early days, uh, the late 60s, you know, the peace lines didn't exist. You know, they weren't there at that time. And there was more contact between the two communities than there is today. You know, people would meet up at the shops and in the city centre and so on. And these guys who who joined the UVF, uh, they knew their, their opposite numbers, their counterparts in the Republican areas like the Lower Falls and Ardoin. I've spoken to guys who were recruited into the UVF in the 1960s and they, they talked about you know, the, the sort of hard nuts in Ardoin, you know, guys like uh, Cliquey Clark, Martin Meehan, Topper Deeds, uh, Paddy Cassidy, um, folk, folk like that. Um, you know, they knew them and they would, they would you know, fight them on a Friday or Saturday night, that, that sort of thing. Um, so they, they knew them on a sort of, knew them, if, if that's the right word, uh, before they were ever in the IRA. Um so yeah, you couldn't you couldn't say that there was any real respect. You know. Um there's too much bitterness and hatred there. You know, and certainly like the INLA, they would just regard them as scumbags. You know, there wouldn't there wouldn't be anything like respect there. They would regard them as you know, the the sort of dregs of republicanism, people who were too mental for the IRA. Uh, that's not my opinion, but that would that would be the opinion of most of them. Interesting, very interesting. Um, wh- where did they um, where did they source um most of their guns, explosives, and, and so on? I, I remember being quite surprised that um, uh, at least at one stage they were involved with a, a group in South Africa. And am I am I correct in saying that the Palestinian Liberation Army actually supplied both sides at once at one stage? The the South Africa thing it's it's, it's something about a, a red herring. Um, the guns didn't actually come from South Africa. There there was an, an initial connection to South Africa because the, the South Africans were running a sort of sanctions busting operation um, to get modern weaponry in there, and they were very interested in surface to air um, missiles um, because they were involved in the war with Angola at that point, and there were Cuban advisors. Operating there, um, the the sort of uh, Soviet bloc sourced aircraft were taking quite a toll on the South African ground forces at that time. So the the loyalist or also resistance who were in the lead for that, they were trying to get uh, uh, examples of surface-to-air missiles that were produced at uh, shorts. Um, which is now Talas. It's owned by a, it's a multi multinational French headquartered but multinational uh, uh, weapons company. Um, they manufactured surface to air missiles for the British Army. They're also exported all over the world. Uh, originally blowpipe and then uh, javelin, and then the latest one, late nineteen eighties, was Star Streak. Um, <clears throat> And there were various other they had they had blueprints and plans which were which were passed on to the the South Africans. But the South Africans weren't interested in uh, doing a deal for you know 150 grand worth of weapons. That was chicken feed to them, absolute chicken feed. Um, so they passed them on to a, a Lebanese Christian arms dealer, a guy called Joe Fozzi, who was able to source uh, weapons which had been captured from the PLO 
um, and possibly other other militias in in Lebanon. And this was the stuff that was that was um, uh, passed on to Ulster Resistance, UVF, and, and UDA. Um, but in earlier times, uh, in the 1970s, a lot of the weapons were were actually stolen from uh, the British Army, either the UDR or quite often the Territorial Army, um, to a lesser extent the RUC. And the Republicans would, would um, uh, give that as an example of collusion. But when the UVF were doing that, they were only imitating what the IRA had done. You know, the IRA in um, the War of Independence and then later on the 1930s, 40s, 50s, um, early 60s possibly, you know, their main source of weapons it wasn't the US, it was arms raids on British Army barracks and arms dumps and also um, armories and barracks south of the border as well. Um, Phoenix Park is one, you know, millions... The IRA was short of ammunition, 45 caliber ammunition for the uh, Thompson submachine guns. So they stole literally millions of rounds in one arms raid. Um, I don't have a big list of them with me just now, but anybody. Uh, Goff Barracks was another one. Uh, Felsted School in England, um, which was a sort of uh, army cadet armory. In those days, the army cadets had brown guns and the Enfields and things like that. Um, I think possibly also stem guns as well. Um, a load of weapons were stolen from, from there. Um, the Royal Naval Air Station near Derry, uh, that was raided as well. So they were really imitating, you know, guys like Gusty and so on, they were pretty knowledgeable about the history of the IRA. So that was a deliberate attempt to, you know, you know imitate, but it was certainly inspired by what the, the IRA were doing. And also, um, personal protection weapons um, throughout the troubles, you know, uh, off-duty members of the RUC and UDR were given what were called PPWs, which are personal protection weapon, given a permit to, to carry these for their own protection. The UDR only got, there were Walther PPs, they're only 2.2 caliber, which is the smallest you can get, uh, probably as a recognition that some of them were going to be going to be pinched. Sometimes that was done with the connivance of the the people who were being targeted, but quite a lot of other occasions it wasn't. And that was dangerous because these guys these guys didn't know that whether these guys were loyalists, they have to take their weapon, IRA, they have to kill them. I think at least one occasion somebody was killed uh, attempting to do that. Um, there were also weapons came from Scotland as well, but they tended to be older stuff. It'd be stuff like you know, guys from the First World War, Second World War, who would, you know, find pistols or even a submachine gun, you know, or a hand grenade, you know, and they'd put it in their 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 knapsack or backpack and take it home as a souvenir. You know, there was a lot of that stuff going on, you know, even to this day when there's uh, firearms amnesties, stuff like that turns up, you know, it's been sitting in their loft for 80 odd years and people just want to get rid of it. Um, there were far, far more weapons in the UK in those days than there are today. Uh, the explosives... He, I'm sorry, Eddie actually mentioned that that when he was about 16 or 17, one of his first jobs in the UVF was uh, essentially doing armed robberies and stealing fellas' um, personal protection weapons. He he said himself he was bursting into fellas' houses um, mm -hmm. and they didn't, with a mask on and them not knowing 
Is he IRA? Is he is he not? Is he loyalist or what? What they were doing, which the IRA didn't really do, although they they had other homemade weapons, um, mostly anti-armor weapons. The, the loyalists were manufacturing their own firearms, um, basically submachine guns, nine millimeter submachine guns, because um, they're the easiest to make. Um, and certainly by 1975, they had distributed workshops in Mid Ulster, um, which were were turning these things out. Distributed, basically decentralized, so that if one place was um, uncovered by security forces, the whole operation wouldn't collapse. But what's interesting is that in in large part, uh, those weapons were manufactured not directly by the UBF or UDA, although somewhere manufactured by the, the UVF, uh, is that these other organizations, which were sort of loosely classed as doomsday groups, like the Orange Volunteers and Down Orange Welfare, uh, they were behind that, uh, or certainly played a, a central role in it. And I think, I believe the reason for that is that these were groups which were not really prepared to get involved in violence at that stage. You know, they were only prepared to do it safe. You know, a civil war broke out of the, the Irish army, went went over the border. Um, so they were manufacturing these and stockpiling them, you know, in preparation for an event like that. But at the same time, the UVF and UDA were happy to use them there and then. Um, and it always seemed to be older men who were involved in that, guys in their 50s, 60s, even 70s, who were maybe retired engineers, people who were sort of good, good with their hands. Um, and most of the, most of those guns, they were okay. I think that's the best you could say about them. Um, they certainly weren't a, an adequate substitute for, you know, professionally made factory built weapons. But they would, you know, they would do the job. Which is in the case of the UVF and UDA, the vast majority of the time, close quarter murders. You know, the distance of maybe about six feet. You know, you didn't need great accuracy or reliability as long as it went bang and you pulled the trigger. You know, that was that was enough. Uh, the explosives, virtually all of the explosives were stolen. Um, Scotland actually played a big, big part in that, um, particularly the area where I am just now, because um, there was still a big mining industry in Scotland in those days, open cast mining. Um, so through that, you could get, and the, the people who live in those areas, sort of Lark Hall, Watston, Drongan, uh, sort of uh, East Ayrshire, South Lanarkshire, you know, maybe Airdrie as well, um, would have very pronounced loyalist views. Quite quite a few of these people, uh, their, their families had originally come from Northern Ireland and they brought the Orange Order with them. Um, so they would make sort of piecemeal thefts, you know, a few detonators, a few sticks of gel ignite, you know, um, detonating cord, a bit at a time. They stockpiled and then taken over to Northern Ireland. And also um, one of the main <clears throat> ingredients for the homemade mixes in those days was sodium chlorate or sodium chloride, which was, uh, it was restricted in Northern Ireland from 72 and 73 onwards, uh, but totally uncontrolled in the rest of the UK. So you could buy hundreds and hundreds of pounds of it in Scotland or England, and then 
take it over. The other main ingredient was ice and sugar, which obviously you can get anywhere. Um, and there were thefts. In Northern Ireland, there was still a big textiles industry in the 1970s. And a lot of these chemicals that were used in UVF bombs had a role as sort of feedstock in that industry, like um, sodium chlorate and sodium chloride were used. Uh, they were what referred to as, as bleach powder. That was used for bleaching the raw uh, cloth. And then sodium nitrate was also used as a dye fixative. And then you have ammonium nitrate, which is one quite a lot of people know about. That was used as, as fertilizer. Um, all these chemicals were, were put under tight restrictions. But as I say, in the rest of the UK, you could you could still you could still get them pretty easily. And there were there were routes that were set up to to take them to Northern Ireland from you know Scotland or Liverpool. Liverpool was a major hub for uh, weapons and explosive smuggling, particularly in the nineteen seventies. We touched on it there. Um, uh, a, a lot gets made. A lot gets made of like like collusion between between loyalists and British security forces. Now, obviously, it gets made a lot of by. Um, by by Republicans generally, so of course, of course, they have an interest in um, in exaggerating or, or overplaying it. Um, did did you in in all your in all your talkings with them um, with former loyalists, um, did did you come across any of them talking about um, what what you kind of spoke about, which is uh, weapons being stolen from a base, but the accusation being that that there was a blind eye turned and it wasn't really stealing; it was giving. You know. Um. Well. I Quite a, the uh, the country guy, the guys from the country that I, I spoke to, quite a few of them had served in the UDR as part-time members. Um, and they say, look, if this was officially sanctioned or tolerated, we would have been away with a hell of a lot more. And I would point out that every single one of them went to jail. You know, I've interviewed 57 people and all of them, only one has never been to prison. All of the others went to prison, and about a third of them were life sentence prisoners. Um, you know, I think that the UVF certainly, uh, as far as the UDA and it's sorry the <laughs> Freudian slip, the UDR in Mid Ulster, the UV the UVF had it reasonably well penetrated. Um, some cases with the UDR, you would get guys who. Um, just got sick of being targeted by the IRA and operating under very tight uh, operational restrictions about when they could and couldn't open fire and not being able to go out and act proactively. And so decided to join the UVF. Um, but you also got many, many uh, examples of UVF members who were encouraged by their organization, by their commanders to join the UDR. He said, if you want weapons training, join the UDR, you'll get weapons training from the British Army, you'll, you'll not get any better training anywhere in the world. And as one of them pointed out to me, he said, you know, you're being given counter-ambush training in the UDR. You know, that's all, you're also being trained in how to set up an ambush. If you're being given counter-ambush training, you're being taught in the techniques of how to mount, you know, a, a professional ambush yourself. And they also got insights into um, uh, IRA tactics as well, and also access a big part uh, intelligence, you know, through the, the photo montages and P cards, P stands for personality cards, where 
we would have with Republican suspects and and so on. Um, I think uh, with regards to there was one very big arms raid in Mid Ulster in 1972, where uh, a UDR stroke uh, TA uh, barracks was broken into, and a lot of weapons were got from the armory. You know, there was the Brixton. There was there was inside help there. Uh, but it's, it wasn't it wasn't officially sanctioned or or condoned, you know, you know. If they were, why did all these guys go to go to prison for it? You know, if if the if the British state was interested in arming the UVF and UD, they wouldn't have been making guns in garden sheds, you know, and risking blowing their hands off. Um, they wouldn't have been using unstable explosive mixes that that kill people in premature explosions, um, you know. <laughs> With regards to the 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 Goths, I mentioned earlier the the Goth barracks raid uh, that was that was carried out by the the IRA. Um, you know, I can't. Remember, I think it might have been Sean Garland that actually joined joined up, and uh, intelligence was passed from him to the IRA. Now Republicans would would class that as collusion if you applied their definition. Um, uh, fairly and and uh, uh, dispassionately, that's collusion. But you know, it's it's not really because collusion requires the cooperation of two parties. That's what it is. The dictionary definition is you know a secret agreement by two parties to assist one another. You know, um, the the British Army certainly wasn't colluding with the IRA in that example, but it's very similar to what the the UDF did later on. Um, speaking of um, speaking of this kind of crossover between um, uh, UVF and UDA membership, or excuse me, uh, UDR membership, and one of the more, <laughs> yeah, not your grand, um, one of the more uh, one of the more notorious figures throughout the troubles generally was a man named Robin Jackson. Um, he was a he was a dual member at least at least for a period. Um, again, in all your uh, in all your research and interviews um, with with loyalist men, um, did did you ever did you ever get any confirmation from anyone if he was involved in on the night of the Miami Show Band and also the 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 Miami Show Band killing, of course, and the and the the Dublin Monaghan bomb bombings? I, I've always kind of wanted to, you know, just just get get their get their insight on it, like. <laughs> Probably more has been written about Robin Jackson than any other figure in the Troubles. Um, and it really is both. Um, like John Weir, you know, who is the source of all this Glen Ann gang uh, nonsense. You know, he made a claim in, in the last couple of years that Jack, Jackson killed well over 100 people. Well, if that was the case, that means he killed more people than the entire INLA did over the course of the Troubles, one man. Uh, it would have required him to be in two places at one time in order to car carry out these murders. Um, you know, the things that have been written about him, like uh, he was uh, the commander of the UVF in Mid-Ulster. He was never the commander of the UVF in Mid-Ulster. He was initially the second in command of the UVF in Lurgan, and then after Billy Hanna was, was shot dead by Jackson, um, he became the OC of the Lurgan Company of the UVF. Um, the the commander of the, the Mid-Ulster UVF in the early days was a guy called uh, Stuart Young. Um, 
as far as the Miami show band thing went, um, I have to be careful how I say this. I've been told by someone who would know a lot about that that incident that Jackson wasn't there. Um, but because that was a that was a, a big operation that was involving members of the UVF from different units in Mid Ulster. Uh, you see, in those days it was the Mid Ulster Battalion, and Portadown and Lurgan would be the two largest components of that. Um, I would be more sort of tuned in to people from Lurgan than Portadown. I'd have more contact with guys from from there. But there were people there from Portadown, Lurgan, Dungannon. Um, and at the very least, uh, Jackson would have had it. He would have had to have given his permission for, for his guys to be involved in that. The way the UVF worked was uh, everything was done on a need-to-know basis. You know, uh, it's almost obsessively secretive organisation. You know, you have to really experience it for yourself to to, to understand it. Um, you know, it's everything's cloak and dagger. You know, even when there's not particularly, it's not particularly necessary. Um, I mean, I've had experience of that myself. You know, where I've been, I've been taken to meet people, and I've been in a car, and I've absolutely no idea where I'm going or who I'm going to meet. You know, and it's not. It's not a particularly sensitive meeting, but it's just it's just the way they do it. It's just their their sort of culture. Um, but even even for members of the UVF, it would be in a, a need to know basis. Um, Dublin Monhan bombings. I you know I don't believe he was involved in that at all. Um, you know the the Monaghan bomb was was done as far as I know by by guys from Portadown. Uh, the the Dublin bombings for Belfast who were in the lead from that um, specifically Shankill Road and uh, Tigers Bay and sort of Torrens area were involved in that to in whatever extent um, but yeah what you've, you've got to understand is that when and because the UVF is a very secret or secretive organisation when a person becomes known, uh, they they become a peg that all sorts of things are hung on, you know. So uh, responsibility for all these notorious incidents are put on this person. Billy Wright would be another example, you know, when uh, when Kappa happened, when the UVF shot dead three uh, young IRA men in 1991, uh, you know, Wright was blamed for that, and people have written newspaper articles and books going into great detail about how Billy Wright was in on that, that he was there, that he was pulling the trigger and they had to be pulled away from it. So Billy Wright wasn't involved in that. You know, he didn't do that. Um, this UVF guys from Tyrone who did that. Uh, I think that Republicans have finally sort of worked that out. Um, but Jackson, as, as I say, um, you know, the whole jackal Mythology. Nobody in the UVF ever called him the Jackal. That was a creation of the Sunday World. Um, so you got got to remember the this you know Jackal mythology that was started by Martin O'Hagan and Jim Campbell at the Sunday World. And I don't know if you know much about Martin O'Hagan. Martin O'Hagan had he was uh, an operator for the official IRA in Lurgan. Uh, 
Martin O'Hagan carried out murders that he wasn't convicted of. I know that for a fact. Um, never mind Robin Jackson. Um, but he obviously he went to to prison. He I think he completed a degree there and became a journalist when he when he came out. But he was the first real source of sort of street level information and gossip in the paramilitary world, uh, particularly in Morgan. Uh, so that that's where that's where all that came from. I mean, the Sunday World. I don't think anyone would accuse it of having a fantastic reputation for accuracy, uh, and that's putting it politely. Um, I might um sorry, I I might bring you back. Um, I have heard I have heard that figure that um that Robin Jackson was um involved in over hundred. More often than not, I've heard around about fifty, and I think there is there is pretty credible proof that. He was being protected that whole time, so that would that would go a long way as to as to explaining what proof is there? What proof is there that he's, he was being protected? I mean, um, he, went, the, he went to prison. You know, he went to prison. There are plenty of yeah uh, loyalist and Republican operators who who didn't go to prison for things that they did commit. True, he went he went to prison, but like he should have he should have gone to prison for for many murders. Um, it, 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 it doesn't mean he wasn't just because he went to prison. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that he was being protected because he didn't serve as much time as he, he should have. That would be true of so many loyalist and Republicans. You know, this you have to make, as I said, you have to make this judgment based on the evidence, not what you suspect. You know, and the evidence is, I mean, this assumption that he did X, Y, and Z and therefore should have been the prison. The, the evidence that he was involved in, obviously Jackson killed people. There's no question. And he killed multiple people, but he didn't kill anywhere near the number of people that is that is claimed and he wasn't a senior. Not even, not, even not even 50. I think if people are saying he did 50, it's because they're including the Dublin and Monaghan stuff and that. But no, no, he didn't kill 50 people. No. That's, I mean, if you think about that, you know, he was, Jackson was only active up until the sort of late 1980s, you know, so he wasn't active up until the end of the trouble. So if you say like 15, 15 odd years that he was active, you know, um, no, there's, there's, there's no way that he would have done 50. Fair enough. Do you think? Do you think at all that he was there was any degree of protection or keeping him out or or anything? Do like like any even even if it wasn't to the degree that that people would say? Do you, do you think there was there's any degree of it? Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, the UVF had you know the the UDR in Mid Ulster infiltrated, and I know it, in terms of. Uh, people who were sympathetic to the UVF, it was much rarer in the RUC, I think probably for, for cultural reasons, because the police tend to be, you know, uh, far more separated from the communities that they, that they police. They're kind of like a, a, a subculture within themselves. That's why, you know, police officers, they, they tend to marry women police officers when they can, and their friends tend to be other police officers when they have like, you know, a barbecue, you know, they don't invite their neighbours, they invite other off-duty coppers, you know, so there's there's less opportunity for fraternisation. But I have, I do know of examples where uh, members of the RUC tipped off, not in not in Mid-Ulster, but in East Antrim, and I know of, you know, 
two two police officers, don't know whether they're alive or dead, so I'm not going to name them, uh, tipped off members of the UVF about searches that were that were going to happen. Um, so it's it's not out with the realms of possibility that that could have happened, but in, in terms of you know giving people a license to murder, you know I'm not sure that you know that would have been the case. I I know that when Jackson did get his uh, his sentence and went to uh, the H box, he was absolutely despised by the prison officers. I mean they hated his guts. They called him the wee bastard because um, I think. You know, Jackson would, you know, threaten their families and, you know, threaten to have hits put on people, that, that sort of thing. Um, so he was absolutely loaded. Um, Billy Wright, you know, was from a, a later sort of period, you know, he was loathed by the RUC in, in Mid-Ulster. So just to add that, um, you know, in in the mid seventies, Jackson brought a case to court against the RUC for being beaten up in custody, and I, I think there's there's absolutely no doubt that he was beaten in custody because the RUC did that to people, loyalists and Republicans, particularly Republicans, um, and that happened in the rest of the UK as as well. People get slapped about by the police um, to various extents, and he actually won the case. Uh, I think the covers they get fined ten pounds each, but they appealed and the conviction was overturned on appeal. Um, but that was him being arrested in the aftermath of the the Miami Showbands thing. Sorry, this actually just just came to mind now. Um, I I, I can't I can't tell you like like the exact kind of the exact kind of piece of paperwork evidence, but I mean, uh, in the book in the book Lethal Allies by Anne Cadwaller, she she could mm. kind of strongly assert that he was he was a paid. He was a paid agent of of the REC at one stage. He, he he was literally getting getting paid in weapons, get, getting paid and getting weapons from. I, I, again, anything anything you've heard about that? Well, and the Papua New Consent, I think that every single loyalist was working for the security forces. No, really, really, they believed that every single loyalist murder was done on behalf of security forces. They don't see them. They deny them any sort of agency whatsoever. They see them as being another arm of the security forces or the state doing things that the security forces couldn't do well in uniform. Um, so the fact that they, they might think a particular person is, you know, a Brussels sprout or an agent is neither here or there. Um, what you've got to understand, every single uh, paramilitary figure in Northern Ireland um, it becomes in any way prominent, or even those who aren't prominent, once they develop enemies, gets accused of being a tout. Because it's it's the worst thing you can say about someone in that world. It's like calling someone, you know, in normal world, a paedophile. You know, it's the worst yeah. thing you can say about someone. It costs nothing to make the allegation. And if you say it enough times and enough people say it, some of the mud will stick. Um, you know, Martin McGuinness was accused and is particularly since he's died, is being accused again and again of being an agent or a type. There's no evidence. As far as as far as I can see, there's no evidence that, you know, McGuinness was. They weren't certainly weren't saying that about him during the conflict. Um, you know, and if the evidence exists now, then surely it existed it existed then. You know, people have said it about just about everybody going. So fair enough. Um 
fair enough about about certain certain maybe people and groups like kind of accusing everyone or or brushing brushing everyone with the same brush but like what was there in in all your in all your talking with people has anyone ever mentioned um like like some ex-loyalists mentioned robin jackson being an asian for them even if even if everyone that the pathanukin center claimed what it wasn't you know well i i asked a guy who was who was very close to jackson and was involved in quite a lot of stuff with him. I asked him, you know, quite plainly, you know, what's your opinion on that? And I expect I expected him to say, no, absolutely not. He didn't say that, but that's more reflection than this guy's character. You know, he's 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 the kind of person who would be intelligent enough to never, you know, uh, unequivocally, you know, rule anything in or out. He, what he said was, you know. If he was, he would be he would be very upset because he was in some pretty hairy situations with him. But he pointed out that Jackson was a, a very sort of streetwise and intelligent character. Um, he was a very quick thinker, good at getting himself out of bad situations. Um, I'm sure if you know somebody now you see tipped him off about something, you know, he could accept that, you know, <laughs> he wasn't gonna turn the help down. But, you know, an example of one of the things he, he did was there was a, a UVF guy from Mid-Ulster who was being held in the police station in Belfast and was being questioned about that. And Jackson managed to trick his way into the station by posing as a solicitor. Um, I can't remember all the details of that. Either, so I couldn't, I couldn't give you the chapter and verse on that. Um, so he didn't, you know, he might be expected to deny that totally, but he didn't. Um, as I say, that's that's more reflection of his kind of personality. I mean, I do, you know, I'm not the kind of person who would don't 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 misunderstand me. I'm not saying, oh, of course, UBF men were totally above being turned by security forces. They were far too dedicated for that. Of course, of course, some of them were. You know, that's 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 the way the security forces work. You know, the British Army <clears throat> and British intelligence had experience of 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 that in, in colonial settings going back decades, if not, you know, 100 plus years, um, Aden, Kenya, uh, Malaya, Cyprus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there, there, there's, there's one instance. Normally I'm pretty ag- agnostic on the question of whether person X or Y is uh, has, was a, a tout or an agent or whatever, because I'd say, the allegation is thrown about so freely, um, and if you if you allow yourself to get to get caught up in that that sort of thinking, it will drive you mad. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the security forces recruit these people. It's not the main reason, but it undermines trust and it makes people paranoid. Uh, but one example of somebody who I'm convinced was a senior UVF man was. Uh, at the very least, given information to the security force and was possibly an agent was a guy called Jim Hanna, um, <clears throat> who was from Lisbon. He ended up on the brigade staff of the UVF, and that's as high as you can go. The only position higher that's is higher than that is uh, chief of staff. Um, there's there was there was just too many too many dubious situations and and incidents involving him. Um, for me to dismiss the the, the possibility. And 
it's only he well he was he was killed by the UVF um for being a suspected type. Um earlier on, um the the, the way I, I can't remember what, I can't remember your wording, but the way you said it, um it, it sounded like you'd be fairly dubious about um the evidence or the um, you know the allegations that that John Weir made. Do, do you um will I will I be right in saying you 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 wouldn't be particularly trustworthy of of him based no, on no, the- no no not at all not at all um, <laughs> you've got to understand John Weir and that 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 special patrol group unit a bit a wee bit of background on that uh, people sometimes get mixed up and they say John Weir former special branch officer. No, he was special patrol group. You know, special branch for spooks. Special patrol group were head crackers. Um, that unit he was in, I think, became something of a dumping ground for police officers who were basically thugs. You know, and unfortunately, there's no shortage of them in the police, um, particularly in those days. And guys with very pronounced, probably extreme loyalist views. Billy McCarthy would be, you know, another one of those. Uh, and then you had McClure as, as well. And they kind of became a, a, a lord to themselves. But when we, but remember, we we only know about these guys because they were arrested and convicted, you know, and they didn't get any special treatment. They get they got life sentences. When Weir was arrested, he attempted to become a supergrant. He attempted to, to turn Queen's evidence, but he was only willing to do that and tell all about what he knew if he was given immunity from prosecution. And obviously that was refused because there's no way people could accept, especially a police officer being given immunity from prosecution for murder, you know, a capital offence. And so he chose not to. So he had his opportunity. He had his opportunity when he was arrested to tell everything that he knew, and he didn't because there was nothing in it for him. So he's a guy who's got a very, very big axe to grind uh, to attack the, the RUC. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, is that the Dublin Morhen bombings, which you mentioned earlier on, you know, we are made various allegations about that, but when it was put to him by the Baron Inquiry, who I think treated him with, with more than kid gloves, you know, they were, I think they were desperate to preserve his, his credibility because they didn't, you know, Justice Baron did not want to be accused of running a whitewash um but when he was basically challenged to to shit and get off the pot in terms of naming people involved in it he named three people involved as being involved in the bombings two of the three were in jail it turned out at the bomb at the time the bombings happened um one of them was joe bennett you know he said that joe bennett was involved in making the bombs bennett was in jail so he couldn't have been involved um all of the the incidents that, that he talks about, you know, there are no surviving witnesses to them. Um, I think what he, he has done in, in some cases, he is he has mixed the truth or fact with things that are not true. Uh, and when you do that, it's very, very difficult to, to unpick it because people can always point and say, hold on, he's mentioned this detail and that's true. But the the the, the most sort of controversial allegations, the most serious allegations that uh, he's made, there's no supporting evidence for them. 
It's just his word, you know. Um, there are people, you know, because the, you know what he said uh, aligns with with their views. They'll they'll be prepared to accept him at his at his word only. But you know, the last time uh, the the unsupported word of a convicted criminal was accepted as evidence, it was called the supergrass system, which both loyalists and republicans were vehemently opposed to, and certainly the the. The supergrasses, you know, were not totally truthful in the, the the evidence, the testimony that they gave. You know, for very good reasons, we don't convict people on the basis of you know uncorroborated accomplice evidence. You know, it's because it's it's offensive to you know most basic notions of 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 justice. Another figure that that I find quite fascinating and that shows up um quite a bit in this conversation about about collusion between security forces and loyalists is um a man named Captain Robert Nyrak, again <laughs> someone else who was um who was uh, accused of being there on the night of the mm -hmm. Miami killing and um, there's also some that that say he um that he drove he drove the bombs down. Um again in in all your talks have have you um have you encountered men who who crossed paths with him or had any involvement in him? No, no, because it's bollocks. <laughs> it's 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 bollocks. The whole the whole lot, the whole thing. Um, listen, let's let's look at this rationally. You have people who are making allegations that Robert Nyrak had infiltrated both the UVF in Mid Ulster the IRA and sort of South Armagh operational area. And he was playing them off against each other, like sort of Yojimbo style. Okay. This is a man who could not pass himself off as Irish for half an hour in a pub in South Armagh. He tried to do it. He got bundled into a car and got shot in the head. Okay. I think Nyrak was, I don't really want to slag off <laughs> dead people who were killed in horrible circumstances, but I think he was a typical upper class English ex-public schoolboy who by virtue of that sort of upbringing had been gifted with this you know uh, sense of confidence that he could go anywhere and do anything as English public schoolboy types tend to think and behave and came a cropper in South Armagh because although the people in South Armagh Republicans in South Armagh may not have the benefit of a prep and public school education um, in the south of England, they are certainly not stupid. They're very streetwise, very wily, very crafty, and extremely suspicious of outsiders, and they would have clocked him a mile away. To be uh, fair, I, I've actually personally never, I, I'm sure it gets alleged, but I, I've never heard the one about him infiltrating um, the UVF. I, I've just kind of heard that, uh, that through him, the British Army would kind of would kind of work in like dirty war stuff um, oh. with, with them. Not, not that he was actually like infiltrating. Yeah. I, I have heard them. Obviously, the story about how he died. Apparently, trying to sing, uh, trying to sing rebel songs. That's right. Uh, yeah. Standing at the table, you know, just do you do do, do, do do do. I was going to ask you. Do, do you believe that? Uh, do, do you think he was just to had a big brain fart that day, or or is it's not true? Um, no, no. The the circumstances of his death that's that's true. That's not controversial. That's that's what happened. Um, but um, as far as the the UVF stuff goes, I mean the 
this comes from Fred Fred Holroyd, the the allegation that he was uh, the guy who shot John Francis Green. John Francis Green, I think, was a staff captain in the in the probies, and he was killed while he was hiding out over the border. <clears throat> and Holroyd made the allegation that that Nairik was responsible for that, and that he had taken a, a Polaroid photo of Green's dead body as a sort of trophy, and it's you know shown or actually gave it to Holroyd. Um, and that's been demonstrated to be untrue. You know, the, the, the picture was taken by scene of crime officers, you know, as part of their normal investigation. You know, um, if, if you had murdered some, carried out an extrajudicial murder of someone and told someone who was not well disposed to you, why would you give them the photograph? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Um, why do you say, sorry, why, why do you say... With, with with a fair bit of confidence that that he wasn't um he wasn't there on the the night of the Miami um show band massacre I I know I I spoke to Stephen Travers now now obviously he didn't see his face or anything but he believes he does he he does believe that that the the English officer who showed up and uh -huh. and everyone else kind of came to attention when he showed up with the with what he called kind of a posh accent was in Iraq yeah. obviously he he's not saying that's a fact he didn't mm -hmm. say something to believe do, do you um do, do you have like evidence to to the contrary. Uh -huh. I, I, well, how do you prove a negative? You know, how can you know? Can you sorry, not not evidence, but but just reason to believe, just reason to believe on a race. Well, what reason would the British government or British intelligence have for murdering a pop group? I mean, there has to be, you know, a, the the border aspect, the, the, wanting to seal up the border because then they can say that oh well, if if this supposedly innocent. Yeah, and that, that serves to everyone is doing it. Then, then anyone could be doing. It. That, that's the theory, at least. The, the the problem with that is, you know, why would the IRA if there was if there was an attempt to set them up as you know IRA smugglers? Why would the IRA be taking explosives out of Northern Ireland? The IRA didn't take explosives out of Northern Ireland. They took explosives into Northern Ireland. That was the thing. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't have convinced anyone anyone who thought about it for more than. 10 seconds would would realize that i think the uvf had plenty of reasons to to carry out a murder like that because they they'd done things like well nothing quite as conniving and and vicious but you know or, or fiendish um but they'd already demonstrated that they carried out no more bombings had no problem you know murdering people um what I I am told is that it was a it was intended to be a proxy bombing, um, using the the show band as unwitting proxy bombers. Um, again, it was it was claimed to me, and I'm not saying that I accept this, that um, the the primary intention wasn't to kill them, but just use them as unwitting transports for the bomb. But at the same time, I don't think they would really give a shit if they did kill them or not. Um, you know the UVF, whatever anyone might say about them. You know they were not great humanitarians. You know they weren't <laughs> they weren't involved in that business because they, you know, were in, interested in people's welfare. Um, but if you think about if if British intelligence or SAS or special forces, whatever, were involved in that, they would have the capability and resources to monitor people south of the border. You know and and mount something. So, they could have dressed up as uh, as Irish Defence Forces, Irish Army, 
and got them on the southern side of the border, you know, and plant explosives as they were coming in. Um, it it, it would, would be very risky to, to it would be an extra level of risk to to take to take that kind of operation into into a different legal jurisdiction. Though it, it it would like right. Yeah, although British special forces did go south of the border and they were arrested. And at least on one occasion, they were arrested and they claimed it was a map reading error. The SAS don't read maps wrong. <laughs> you know, um, what was I going to say? That, um, you know, and if you would think that if there was involvement from British Special Forces Intelligence, you know, they wouldn't use a bomb that killed the people planning it. You know, they, people don't die, you know, members of the British Army don't blow themselves up in premature explosions. Paramilitaries do. Um, as far as the UVF goes, 1975, that was a year in which there were a number of premature explosions because of mishaps with bombs. And that was one of the reasons why the leadership, which was uh, in charge at that time, um, were basically overthrown in a coup. Um, I could see, I could see, like, it, let, let's just say, let's just say it did happen the way the, the, the way the, the way the way the Republicans said, I could see like the, the British security forces wanting to minimize or, or mi, mi, minimize, excuse me, mi, minimize um, what they did, the, the various actions that they were doing and leave more of it to the paramilitaries, because then at least if something goes wrong, there's less of a, you, you know, the, even the fact that it's a paramilitary bomb um, yeah. lends more lends more credence to the the idea that the British security force w w weren't involved. Well, if put, put yourself in the position of a member of the U UVF who's been arrested for the Miami Show band incident, you're looking down the barrel of a life sentence. Now, at that stage, nobody had any idea that the Good Friday Agreement was going to happen and people were going to get early release. As far as you know, you've been involved in one of the most horrific events of the entire Troubles, you know, a notorious event. You could literally be talking about a whole lifetime being in jail in, until you're an old man you know, wearing a nappy, you know, can't get, can't get it up, you know. Uh, and you were doing this at the behest of British intelligence. Why wouldn't you say that? And say, look, this isn't on us, you know. You know, we were put up to this. You know, it would absolutely be in your interest to, to tell people about that. If if British intelligence weren't wanting to get involved in that sort of activity, involving other people, you know, makes it more likely that it's gonna that it's gonna be blown, that it's gonna leak out. If you kept it in house, you know, the the evidence and the record shows that paramilitaries, UVF, UDA, IRA, INLA, you know, a percentage of them did crack under interrogation. You know, made statements and so on. Um, I don't think members of the SAS or MI6 would crack. You know. Fair enough. Uh, again, in your um, in your speaking with um, with ex ex UVF and ex ex loyalists, could you um, could you like confidently put together a list um, of of who actually was there on the night? Because I don't think it's known um, for certain. All of them, a, a good number, of course. I mean, I mean, some of them even some of them even died at the scene. But 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 could you could you like confidently confidently compile a list? No, and I, I would not ask people a direct question, you know, who was there, because people could still be alive and it's, it's just a no-no. I mean, in in terms of, you know, who opened fire, um, I can't say this for certain, but my suspicion is that, you know, John Somerville um, 
he was convicted of his role. He was convicted slightly later than other people. I think it was 1980. You know, John Somerville was probably either the one that first opened fire or was right there at the beginning. He'd just seen his brother literally blown to pieces. Um, but as as for the rest of them, I couldn't I couldn't you know give you a, a list of names. But it was a it was a big job that involved you know multiple units from from Mid Ulster, um, which was unusual. You know, usually a unit would would just carry out an operation in and of itself. They do their own intelligence work, you know, and their own logistics and so on. Um, so it was it was an outlier, you know, as as far as you know, UVF jobs of that period went. Another interesting kind of dirty war aspect mm-hmm. of the whole thing was sometimes members of of uh, paramilitary groups also being um also being an agent and killing. While being an agent, like like my the names that come to mind, uh, Mark Haddock, um, yeah. Nelson, Ken Barrett. After I, I I believe he was recruited after he, he was he was recruited uh, after the the Kunukin thing. Although I don't believe Ken Barrett was actually the one that pulled the trigger. Um, he 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 said he was, but I'm not sure that he was. Again, I'm I'm not directly connected into the the UDA or UFF. I don't know that for sure, but. Don't think he was the actual trigger puller. Um, the likes of um, the likes of Mark Haddock, um, mm. like in within the U the UVF, would it have kind of been suspected he was uh, um, he, he was working with security forces? How how accepted no. or anything? I one of the people I interviewed was a guy who had served as second in command of the UVF, and he said to me quite plainly. We just could not believe that somebody who had committed murder could ever be working for the security forces. The assumption was, um, as as it was with the mafia in in the US, that if someone had had pulled the trigger on someone, they just they, there's no way that they could they could be dirty. Um, and he said to me, "We just couldn't believe that British justice would work that way." And he said, "Maybe we were naive to think that." Um, you know, but obviously, obviously they did. Um, and I think someone like Haddock, you know, uh, I've never met the guy, but I think he was a particularly nasty piece of work, and you know, become, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who uses terms like serial killer and so on. It's very popular amongst the press to to label certain paramilitary serial killers and, and so on. It's just, it's rubbish. It's, it's not necessary. But, you know, okay, he, sorry, yeah. yeah, he was he was whacking people and obviously doing without without fear of, of prosecution. Yeah. Did, um, did, did members, like the members you've spoken to, did anyone at the time strongly suspect that he was also with, uh, with RUC to some degree? No, nobody said that uh, to me. Although, having said that, I haven't really spoken to people about about Haddock all that much. Um, see, the Haddock case, get as I said earlier, it's getting closer to the sort of present day. So I'm, I'm less sort of bold in, in questioning people about that. It just gets a bit dodgier. Fair enough. Again, this 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 is kind of more present day stuff as well, but um, not, not just with loyalists, but with Republicans. Like, like my... 
my uh, perception of them now in the north and the south is that generally they're kind of more just involved in like taxing drug dealers um kind of making money from from crime in some way um yeah c- can you tell us a bit about like maybe since 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 the good friday agreement maybe like the, their involvement um in, in drug dealers like like some people say that that literally like 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 a lot of members of of those groups are essentially just drug dealers, except they have the clout of another name behind them. I know um two or three years ago there was a drug dealer killed. His name was Warren Crossan, and he had been previously involved in the killing of um a notorious crime figure from Ireland named Robbie Lawler, who was was shot dead in Ardine. I think um Warren Crossan's father. I heard he was a, a leader within some loyalist group. His name was Tommy Crossan. Right, I don't. I wouldn't know anything about him. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, before before I talk about this, I'll, I'll I'll preface it by saying that the the leadership of the UVF, the whole organisation on the Shanko Road, what they refer to as the Eagle, um, they are extremely anti-drug. You know, almost fetishistically anti-drug. And you look at the age of the guys, you know, you're talking about people in the, the 60s and 70s, you know, the 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 sort of countercultural revolution passed them by, you know, they 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 weren't wearing, you know, flares and, and beads and you know saying, you know, peace and love, peace and love, you know. It's, you know, they're more, you know, sort of, you know, pint of Guinness and a nip of whiskey types. Um you know, and they can and people like that. They can they can be. You know, I have to remember. I have to speak to them after this, so I'm not going to say that, that willfully offend them. But yeah, and the reason that the part of the reason why they're so anti-drug is because, precisely because, you know, people in their organisation have been involved in in drugs, and it, you know, the the rule is you're absolutely forbidden from getting involved in it, even as a user. Although obviously, if you've been using them rather than, than selling them, you know the the penalties aren't quite as as severe. But um, yeah, the you know the the paramilitary structures, you know, over the over the the last decade and a half or so, they you know they've degraded compared to to what they were when the conflict was ongoing. They're, they're not as tight, and I suppose the most of the <clears throat> Excuse me. Most of the 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 reporting about them would centre around the East Belfast UVF. Now, I don't have any contact with the leadership of the UVF in East Belfast. You know, they they're interested in in talking to me. But if you have that number of people appearing in court and uh, people being convicted of involvement in drugs, you know, it's undeniable. It's absolutely undeniable. Um, and I think that has that probably has a, a big bearing on why you know the UVF still exists to this day, why the central leadership still exists, and their attitude is, or their thinking is, if we were to disband tomorrow, you know, we would go away, but these groups would still exist, and they would claim, they would claim right to the title of UVF, and we don't want to leave it, you know, in. The hands of people like that because we've got to remember even though normal society in you know ponce airports um would absolutely despise the uvf you know they would see them as vicious vicious murderers and terrorists and so on 
the people who are involved in the organization, particularly who've been involved in it for decades, you know, most of their, their life, they take immense pride in it. You know, it's it's very hard for for, for people who are not in it to, to understand. They don't see it as, as something that's uh, contemptible. Um, you know, they is as, as bizarre and possibly offensive as some people might find this, they would feel as much pride in the UBF as uh, somebody who's a member of the, you know, the Coldstream Guards, you know, or um, the French Foreign Legion would would feel, um, you know, it's a it's a culture in and of itself, and you know they they their attitude would be, you know, we're not leaving it to the likes of them because although you know shootings, bombings, murders are permitted, you know, drug dealing isn't. Uh, I think it, one of one of the reasons why they 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 so execrated uh, drugs when they started to, to make their first appearances because people who develop drug problems are very easily turned by the police. They, you know they become grasses, um, and they would they would have seen it as a, as an attempt to to corrode their community from within. You know the probies have exactly the same attitude towards towards drugs and so on. Although they they went even further, you know, they obviously had direct action against drugs, which was basically just a, a way of keeping their operators limber, you know, keeping them in practice during the during the ceasefires, you know, and also because they hated drug dealers as well. Um I, I've I've heard nowadays though, um the other week I spoke the, the episode isn't out yet, but but I spoke to Nicola Talent, who's a, a crime journalist from Ireland. She mm-hmm. uh um, she said that like like they have no issue nowadays like do, doing doing business with each other like 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 drug dealers from from the Republican from the loyalist side they, they have oh. no issue. Mm-hmm. there's no loyalties there yeah. that's true isn't it? Mm-hmm. yeah yeah no that would be true and one thing I'd say is that the Kinnahans the Kinnahans could probably outgun just about any group crime or paramilitary in Ireland. The the money and resources that they have are incredible. incredible. They're super national. That they've they've yeah. been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, uh, you know, and that that um, that that shooting they were they were involved with, you know, with the the uh, the cross dressing gunman. It's just, you know, it's you know that's that's the kind of thing the paramilitaries would involve. There's a level of of professionalism and and in terms of the weaponry they have access to that's you know it's 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 different from you know other organized crime groups you know in fact in fact that shooting the regency the, the ak-47s were provided by, yeah. were provided yeah, they can tell by because the, they were the romanian ones with the the wooden forward pistol grip you know nobody else imported them other than republicans Oh shit! I I didn't know that. Good, good tip. And, and also, literally, the one guy in that attack team who wasn't who wasn't disguising his identity. Um, he's known as Flat Cap now. His name is Kevin Murray, and apparently he um apparently he was a a former Republican. And the reason why he didn't conceal his identity is because he knew that he'd be dying of of natural causes soon enough. Right. Um, so so Jerry Hutch, the the fellow behind yeah. behind that attack, he went up to the north. It turned out the car was bugged. He went up with a fella, a Sinn Féin councillor, kind of, kind of low-level Sinn oh, yeah. Féin yeah. They returned the guns, uh, apparently, as like a kind of a goodwill gesture. And the reason they went up was because Jerry Hutch wanted a meeting with the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And apparently the reason why was to tell the Kinnahins, listen, relax now, this is this is Ireland, we run things, kind of calm down a bit. And apparently their call, their call for a talk was just completely ignored. It, it, it wasn't respected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, um the the connections with um the criminal world is something that you know the UVF are very, very sensitive about because what you've got to remember during the conflict, the UVF would the UVF would have bought guns from the devil. You know, they they didn't really care where they came from, you know, as long as they could get hold of firearms and explosives, they were willing to deal with absolutely anyone. Um and they might be cagey about, about talking to that, but I've I've heard the the truth in 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 private, you know, when I when I've interviewed people. Um one of one of the famous uh, stories is about, you know, Martin Cahill and his involvement with the with the UVF. Actually, Cahill never met the UVF. The guy who met the UVF uh, was a fellow called uh, Tommy Coyle. I think I think that's the right name, who was like a very well-known criminal fence. He was the guy who acted as an intermediary between the UVF and Cahill. Um but, but, it, but it was true, but it was true that he was um that he was in talks to 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 sell him to sell him the, the paintings, right? Yeah, it was it was all to do with 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 these with these uh these paintings and you know guys were arrested in, in Turkey or either in Turkey or coming back from Turkey, you know, trying to offload them. Um but that's not why Cahill was killed. You know, that was that was an excuse, basically. Um, I I am not somebody who's particularly knowledgeable about the criminal world south of, south of the border. Um, that's that's one one example of something that's that's not true. Um, I've heard as well that the loyalists once planned um, a bombing in like Pier Street in Dublin, and that apparently Martin Cahill was was helping them. Have you heard anything about that? No. No, is if that's talking about the Widow Scaland bombing, no, Cahill wasn't involved in that. Uh, the intelligence for that was as simple as opening up and full Black Republican news. It was advertised in there. <laughs> you know, this was a fundraiser that was held in the the, the upstairs function rooms of uh, Widow Scallons. And you know, it that it's, it was as simple as that. I I would know quite a lot about that operation and what happened and it, and whatnot, um, but um, you know, no, Carol, Carol was never ever mentioned, you know, in, with regards to that. Um, interesting, interesting. I, I didn't know that. What, why? Um, what you 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 mentioned that that the dealings with the loyalists uh wasn't the primary reason or the reason why Carol was shot. What 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 what, uh, what do you think I, it is? I I don't know off the top of my head. I don't know exactly why, but that that wasn't that wasn't the reason. Um, I think it actually came from within the criminal world and it would have probably been about money or drugs there's definitely there's definitely rumors in fact a guy who later became a huge criminal figure john gilligan was part of was part of cal's gang and there's there's talks that maybe like that gilligan owed owed him a load of money and then it would suit it would suit him to to not have to pay it back basically yeah Yeah. i think i think that that's that's on the right track that's that sounds like 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 something i've heard before Interesting. Okay, I, I won't I won't keep you too much longer. Just, just kind of just kind of one more topic. Um since the Good Friday Agreement, there's been um I mean to the point where there's been people like people murdered, there's been a lot of um kind of uh, tumultuousness among uh, among loyalist groups, kind of leadership, 
Um, like there's been, I, I I couldn't put a figure on it, but but there's there's been a good number of killings. Um, I think related to kind of power struggles within within the UVF. Um, did did this come about like? Um, it 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 seems kind of interesting that it came about after um after the Good Friday Agreement. Did did it have anything to do with that, or was it just coincidental? No, I mean I'm not sure. In terms of killings, the the, the only ones they weren't so much internal to the UVF. But it was there was the feud with the LBF and the feud with the UDA, um, which started in Lower Shankle. Johnny Adair, who was behind that, um. Uh, yeah, the the feud with the UDA in, in two thousand. Yeah, that was that was Adair's ego getting out of control. Um, and I think a lot of people in the UDA would even admit that. Um, you know, unfortunately, Adair started to think that he was bigger than the whole UDA, and and you would see that. You know, it was only it was C Company who were the driver of that, which was the the UDA company in the the lower shankle. Uh, Adair wanted. Uh, a and B companies of the UDA would be Upper Shankle and, and Woodvale areas, and he wanted them to attack the UDA, the, the UBF as well. And they didn't, you know, they said, yeah, 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 of course, yeah, we'll get on to that. And they never did anything. So it was really Adair who was the driving force behind that, um, which ultimately led to his, his downfall, you know, well, in part, you know, it was when he started attacking other members of the UDA that, that really did for him. Um, but the LVF, um, that was that was one of the most vicious feuds. Uh, it was really really personal that um, because you know, I'd say the possibly the majority of the UVF in in Portadown and some figures from outside of Portadown as well jumped ship onto the LBF with Billy Wright and so on. And one of the things people always say to me is that feuds are 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 far worse than the ordinary, you know, violence of the troubles because one thing is it's very personal. Number two, people know exactly who's involved, you know, so there isn't the problem of having to go into enemy territory and gather intelligence and so on. Um, and that, that rumbled on until about 2005 with basically the UVF moved to wipe out the LBF for good. Um, and you know, there's still LVF figures that are still knocking about, but they don't really use the name anymore. Uh, you know, quite a few of those guys have just moved on to the, you know, organized crime networks. Did Did you see that thing? I think it was, it was last week actually. There was um a super grass from from a lawless background, yeah, was, and the, there was a picture of, of like I don't know maybe ten or so men in hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in hoods and masks in court, and then I I read that they were able to be in court for a bit, but then then they were told to unmask or leave. Yeah, do, do you want to tell us about that? Did you know anything about it? I don't know anything about that at all, but I think people can you know put two and two together and you know <laughs> about what that was about. Mm-hmm. Fair yeah. they would, they would have, I don't know whether Haggerty was screened or not because sometimes when people. Uh, Give evidence, and you know they're at risk. They would they would have like they would put like a, a canvas screen around the 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 witness box. I don't know if that was that was done on this occasion. Yeah. Um, sorry, no, I, I I just got reminded of this. Um, the way I'm pretty sure when in my conversation with Eddie Kenner, the way uh, I'm pretty sure the way your name came up 
was I asked him does he know of because I just I just interviewed him Richard O'Raw about his his steak knife book it's quite an interesting topic um but I was asking him is there like an equivalent within like the UVF or the UDA was there like a steak knife uh within them um would you would you have heard anything like that um in respect of being like a long-term agent and and, and who was um who was kind of acting, yeah, who was kind of like killing on behalf of the security force and maybe killing other informants and other rats in order to bolster his own position and stuff? Oh, I don't know. It could well be that there, there is one and they just haven't been uncovered yet. But, um, you know, Brian Nelson, you know, Brian Nelson didn't directly get involved in the trigger pulling um, because he was he was like an intelligence officer for the, the UDA and UFF uh, when he was involved. But... You know, he was up to his neck in setting up, you know, murders and attempted murders and and so on. Um, uh, the 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 guy that I mentioned earlier on, the UVF, Jim Hanna. Um, my, certainly my suspicion is that um, well, Jim Hanna joined the UVF in 1972, and within a year, he had gone from just a buckshe volunteer to the brigade staff which is the, the overall controlling body of the organization. That's incredible. That's a really meteoric rise. And I have a suspicion, I, can, I have no evidence to support this, so it's just a suspicion that people were being, uh, senior UBF members were being interned, that's, that is interned without trial, um, in order to clear the way for him to, to rise up the ranks. Um, again, just a, just a suspicion. Of course, of course. I did this whole thing. I mean, the like any collusive aspect or even any aspect generally. This all took place. This all took place in the shadows. Like the, the, the there's so much. Like like once it's actually passed and once people are dead and stuff, it, it it's so hard to, to to kind of confirm a lot of it or or unconfirm. Yeah, it, it all exists. A lot of it exists. Like like in kind of like the underworld type of stuff. You have you have to be careful though, because sometimes the paramilitaries whether they're loyalist or Republican, can have their own reasons for, you know, um, uh, invoking, you know, agents or collusion or whatever, because it sometimes absolves them of responsibility for things that they're not proud of. Like, I've, sometimes uh, people in the UVF have, have claimed that, um, you know, the some of the worst excesses that happened in mid-Ulster in the 1970s, the mid-70s, when it was known as the murder triangle, you know, they've attempted to say that, um, you know, or these events were inspired or, or or provoked by British intelligence. You know, the UVF didn't need any help from British intelligence to get involved in sectarian murders. You know, this was a, as, as some people in the UVF would have believed that Mid-Ulster got locked into a sort of private war with, um, with Republicans. You know, and they did attack Republicans and they did kill a few Republicans down there, but the majority of the retaliatory attacks were carried out against the nationalist population, you know. Um and they would they would, you know, invoke sort of British intelligence as a as a way of absolving themselves of responsibility, or at least some responsibility. Um but people were being really honest, you know, that of a lot of sectarianism that existed in those days. I think loyalists are probably more honest about that and more willing to cop it than than uh, the Provies are. 
Um, very good. We we've come to we've come to the end of our time. I th thank you so much now for for everything you shared. Great conversation. Um, in terms of the book, um, do, do you see it? Do you see it kind of being finished or released? Um, in any in any years sooner? No, I I, I don't know. Or anything. I'm I, I'm not putting together. Yeah. I'm sure it's very different. It's come a bit. It's become a bit of a standing joke about when when this this book's going to be <laughs> going to be completed. You know, um. The thing is, I had no idea when I started out that it would be such a big job. I mean, I've I've maybe kind of scunnered myself by going overboard with it. the number of interviews I did. You know, there's over over two hundred of them, and the 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 source material that I've gathered. You know, whether it's depositions, inquest files, declassified intelligence documents, copies of combat newspaper articles, and so on. There's like about thirty seven gigabytes worth of stuff. Um, <laughs> it's uh, you know, I could, I could really do with an editor or a research assistant, honestly. Very good. Um, we we might speak again soon. Um, if you you know, just, just the other news that comes about or or when the book, um, when the book comes along I, again. Th thanks very much for your time. Where, where can we find you? Um, uh, if you just google uh, Balaclava Street or Balaclava Street blog, um, I'm not active on Twitter anymore because I hate Elon Musk. Um, and it's just it's just a sewer of bigotry and trolling and spam and so on. But I still, you know, occasionally post things to to Facebook. If you do a Facebook search for for uh, Balaclava Street, you know, any sort of updates or, or comments, you know, I've been neglecting it quite a bit recently. So, but uh, if I have anything to say, it'll probably go up there. And you know, I. I should I should I should do better in posting updates on the on the the website as well. Um, there there may be something, you know, there's something happening earlier on next year, and you know there'll be a a commentary on on that that'll be coming out. So. Interesting, very good. I, again, th thanks very much for for all your time. I, I I had a great time discussing everything. Yeah, yeah, not a problem. Glad I could be of help. Thanks, Matt.